Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and I'm very pleased to tell you that today we're talking with Linda Ross Meyer about her terrific new book, Sentencing in Time. It is out from Amherst College Press. In the interest of full disclosure, I would like to tell you that Amherst College Press is the principal sponsor of the New Books Network, and we're very, very grateful for their support. So welcome to the show, Linda. Thank you, Marshall. It's a pleasure. Great. So could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? So my name is Linda Meyer, and I teach primarily at Quinnipiac Law School here in Connecticut. Uh, I've taught there for about 20 years. I'm very interested in criminal law and sentencing, and I do a lot of work in prison. So I'm sure we'll be talking about that as we go Yes, we absolutely will. I've never been in prison myself, but I've had, um, by another connection, um, I have, uh, let's just say, people I know who have been in prison and are in prison. (laughs) So I know a little bit about them. Um, So tell us why you wrote this book. So this book comes out of four experiences that I've had. First of all, I've always been very interested in why we punish people. Um, especially this view that was very current in the 80s and 90s, that we punish people because they deserve it and that the, the punishment has to be harsh and it has to hurt and it has to sort of be a payment or something. Um, that idea of retributivism was the subject of a prior book that I wrote called The Justice of Mercy, where I basically spent an entire book trying to show why it is that mercy isn't unjust but is actually more just than a sort of retributivism And that was primarily because I felt like we were being uh, not humble enough in the way that we um, sentenced people. So that was the sort of core philosophical basis of thinking about sentencing that this book comes from. But um, my experiences made it more visceral, more real to me. And those experiences were, first of all, watching federal sentencing proceedings. I worked in the federal courts for about three years and And I worked on death cases, and I worked on a lot of sentencing cases. I saw probation memos. I saw, uh, you know, the families coming into the courtroom. I saw, I heard a lot about the the past lives of the people that were being sentenced. And I saw how difficult it was to sentence and how the rules of sentencing, however minute and detailed they were, never seemed to perfectly fit the cases that came before us. the other two other experiences also sort of shaped this book. One is I've spent the last eight years or so teaching women in prison. Um, I teach undergraduate courses. I love doing this. Uh, but I think in the end, they're the ones who've taught me more than I've taught them. And I've learned an awful lot about what it might be like to be in prison, what the experience is and how people change and grow in prison. Uh, And that, of course, is reflected a lot in this book. 
Um, and finally, because of some of the women that I taught who had been in prison since they were teenagers, one in particular uh, was 14 when she was imprisoned and she had a 50 year sentence with no parole. And that led me to do some advocacy uh, to try to help legislatures rethink how they're sentencing children, especially after the the Miller and Graham decisions. The Miller decision, by the way, is one that's in the appendix of this book. Mm -hmm. Um, But after the Supreme Court basically said, look, it's cruel and unusual to give up essentially on a child who's committed even a serious crime because children can change and grow and because they don't have the kind of control over their environment or the kind of understanding of future consequences that adults do. So, um, so those experiences, that advocacy experience, that teaching experience, that federal sentencing court experience, and my just philosophical interest generally in mercy contributed to writing this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helped me see that we have problems with the way that we understand and implement punishment. I mean, I think everybody knows now, although uh, when I first started teaching this stuff 15 years ago, nobody really sort of knew this. Uh, But everybody now knows that the United States has more people per capita behind bars than any other country in the world, that we are the the leading um, imprisoners, uh, which is just, I think, so, so shocking. Um, And also, of course, that we have these very, very long sentences, especially uh, in the 90s when we were doing three strikes legislation, when we were doing mandatory minimum sentences, uh, many of these kinds of things have not yet been repealed. So we have really long sentences. Um, And of course, we don't see the change. We don't see what happens inside the prison. We don't see the people changing um, during that time in prison. So those... um, those problems seem to me to be problems of the way that we thought about time. And that got me going. Thank you very much for that. One initial thought I had was when you mentioned that children are not completely capable of understanding the consequences of their action is it concerns the age of majority. And I know that phenomenologically, if I look at myself, the age of majority should be about 38 (laughs) <laughs> that exactly. was about I would say moment. maybe 52. Yeah, that was about the moment I realized that my actions had really serious consequences for my entire life. It was not before that, I absolutely guarantee you. Um, <laughs> and I'm dead serious. So let's actually get into the meat of the book. And, and you make a couple of initial distinctions that are, are very interesting. And, and those are between the phenomenological experience of time and what you call, I think, the cosmological experience of time. Um, Perhaps you could talk a little bit about those distinctions and the way in which those two ways of thinking about time are useful and ways in which they are not. Terrific. Um, So I draw a lot on Paul Ricoeur. Uh, So the, the terms cosmological and phenomenological come from him. Um, he, in turn, is drawing on Aristotle and Augustine. Um, and I also, uh, in my previous work, have drawn a lot on Heidegger and Heidegger's understanding of what it is to be human as being a being that exists in time. Um, so those are the, the the philosophical sources that, I, that I'm drawing on here. Um, and the way that Ricoeur talks about the problem of time is he says, we all, we have these ways of thinking of time, neither one of which really captures 
what time is. And in part, the reason that we can't capture what time is, is that we're inside it. There's no way we can stand outside of time and look at it. Uh, so we make two kinds of mistakes or we have two kinds of incomplete understandings of time, I guess might be more accurate. Cosmological time is when we think of time as a quantity of something or perhaps like a, a, a spatial metaphor, like a timeline. Um, and this is kind of silly, right? Because of course the timeline metaphor or in the book, I talk about going to the museum and seeing tree rings when we see this stretch of time all at once, but of course we don't experience time all at once. Nobody can experience time all at once. Uh, they're human. So this is a, a metaphor, but we get carried away with this metaphor and we start thinking of time as quantity. And that has some, some very deleterious effects in my view for the way that we sentence people uh, because this, this equation between time and quantity of something like money uh, creates a kind of false uh, connection. The second way that Recur says that we understand and also misunderstand time is uh, thinking about phenomenological time, which is the experience of duration. So um, being in time, we experience the now, uh, which is now then, after I just said <laughs> yeah, it. <laughs> right. That's one of my favorite uh, things, is that it's always now. I just, yes. I, I think about that a lot, like literally every day. Like, it's always <laughs> now. As right. a historian, you have to understand that this is just something you just have to consider all the time. I mean, it's now. <laughs> exactly. It's now, right? And, and the now that I just said is no longer now, right? right? Yeah, so it's no, very... It's something. Things are constantly <laughs> passing away, and, and they're captured only in memory. So we... We hold on to the now briefly as a kind of memory, um, which may be sharp or hazy or, you know, if we're not paying attention, it may just go away completely. Um, and then we're always taking our memories and we're projecting them into the future in terms of what we expect to come, what we think is going to happen in the future. And so, um, as Heidegger would say, we live toward a future from a past. Um, and we think that way, too. We are always drawing on uh, our the grammar of our minds in order to understand the new experience that we're having right now. Mm -hmm. So we're always living from the past to a future. And this again has some problems for the way that we conceptualize time, because from the phenomenological part uh, point of view, when I'm not looking at something, it's not changing. <laughs> so we have this experience of, say, I give an example in the book of being in the sort of cafe on campus and watching my old lover walk in the door. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I haven't seen this person for so long. And I have that, you know, my heart's leaping and I, and I make eye contact with this person and, and I get this puzzled look and I realize, oh, my God, this kid is 20 years old. <laughs> and, this, and this person that I fell in love with would now be like 55. So that was just like this very weird experience of having freeze framed in my mind, this person who obviously has been changing while I wasn't looking. And that's one of the sort of what uh, Recur might call the aporias of phenomenological time, the fact that, that things change even when we're not perceiving them. Uh, and yet our experience of duration is very personal and has this very sort of um, subtle viewpoint in the now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that too has some really difficult consequences for sentencing. Um, so uh, 
Well, thank Maybe you. Move into that. The I think it might be helpful for some of our listeners. This word phenomenological for a long time really confused me. And I'm somebody that studied philosophy, but once I finally got it, it was an entirely different way of looking at the world. And I, and I, and I think that it's perhaps the hangover of 19th or early 20th century, not to get too technical, Vienna school scientism that has sort of forced this way of viewing the world out of common parlance. But, you know, just as an example, if you want to understand phenomenology, boil an egg and put a timer next to it. Watch the timer, watch the egg. You're going to want that egg to be done. And that timer is going to be clicking. And you're going to feel the difference between those two things. Because what that, what that timer says is of no concern to you anymore. You just want that egg to be done. Or another example I really, really like, and I'm sorry to go on like this, is that somebody pointed out to me, it was actually a classicist, he's like, you know, if you look up into the sky at night, doesn't it look like a pasta strainer turned over? Doesn't it really look like that? And I'm like, it does actually look like that. <laughs> it really does. That's how you experience. It's, it's a, the sky is a vault and it has holes in it. I, you know, that's what it looks like. So I, I really appreciate that you bringing this discussion of the experience of time into sentencing. Um, one other thing I wanted to say before we continue, and again, I'm sorry to go on for so long, but as a historian, this deal about putting people in essentially state-run prisons, large complexes for long periods of time, is new. Uh, we did not do this kind of thing before about that I'm going to be wrong here, but 18th, maybe 19th century. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I would say 1900. Um, before that, you know, if you were arrested, you might you might spend time in a usually a private jail um, awaiting your court date. But once your court date came, the sentence was probably a fine or. Uh, maybe time in the stocks or some other kind of public humiliation, or in a severe case, it might be branding or uh, some kind of corporal punishment or perhaps even, uh, you know, hanging. So there, there wasn't this sort of idea of time spent incarcerated as itself a punishment. It was simply a convenience for waiting until your trial happened. And in that sense, it's kind of a weird natural experiment. I mean, we've never, like the United States, nobody has ever done anything like the United States has done and basically decided that people that break the law are going to be physically ostracized. I mean, they're literally going to be warehoused away from us. That That's a, like a total, I mean, who knows what the consequences of that are. Right. And I think one of the ironies to be aware of here is that this was originally a reform measure. Oh, yeah. And so these were, you know, these Puritan reformers who wanted to get away from the harsh corporal punishments of the past, who wanted to uh, get away from the death penalty. And so they advocated this idea of a penitentiary, which was literally a place where you could commune with God and become penitent. And it was supposed to be a healing place, like, you know, it'd be gardens and you'd be reading and people would be praying together. And, or maybe you'd have solitude so that, so that you, you would be able to sort of commune with God in a kind of quiet way without the intrusion of, you know, violent, terrible people. Uh, of course, that became the whole, that became solitary confinement, uh, which, as we now know, literally drives people crazy. Uh, and 
So you have to be careful when you're reforming, I think. And I think one of the cautions at the end of this book, after I give my like very vaunting idea of how we should reform sentencing is to be very wary of reforms gone wrong. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm totally with you there. I, and you know, I think many, this is one of the very few places where I always have to be careful because my friends will yell at me if I call these things the wrong thing. Conservatives and liberals or people on the right and left actually agree that we have performed this natural experiment now in warehousing people, making them penned and hoping they'll come out better people. And it has failed. Period. End of story. It does not right. work. I don't know what else you can say about it. It does not work. Recidivism rates are 70%. That's not success. It simply does not work. And everybody across the political divide even recognizes that with the way that we are doing this habitually, and not only that, and I don't mean to go on like this, but it's hugely expensive. I mean, uh, when you learn how much it takes to house a federal prisoner for a year, it is, it is eye popping. It's what a teacher earns. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow, that's just. You can think of all the teachers we could have. I know. Or we pay the teachers we have twice as much. I, you know, I'm like, right. you know, and I'm a reasonably, I'm hesitant to say this, but kind of conservative guy. But still, like, I'm looking at that. I'm just like, whoa, did we go wrong? I don't know what <laughs> happened. Two <laughs> million more teachers every year. I know. I, I, <laughs> great. Or I could get a salary, but whatever. I just something. <laughs> anything. Yeah. Um, so, uh, let's talk about, um, good time versus bad time in jail. And I think you know a lot about this and maybe you can describe it. So, uh, I think that (laughs) sitting there in your cell, what does it mean to say that we're going to punish you with time? And I think that's one of the things that is just so bizarre to me when you start actually thinking about it, when you don't just sort of take it for granted that we're doing this. Um, what does it really mean to sentence someone to, t- to time, right? So we naively think of sentence like a fine, like an amount that's owed or has to be paid. And we have these metaphors like, oh, you have to do your time. You have to pay your debt to society. But we don't think about the fact that you can't pay time off. There's no balloon payment of time. It's a duration. And this is the this is the cosmological fallacy, right? We think of time as an amount of something like money. Um, and there's this great thought experiment by J.C. Olson um, a long time ago. He wrote this article called The Punitive Coma. And he said, uh, we know that prisons are dangerous. We know that there's rape and violence and it's really horrible suffering. Uh, so what if we just gave people the choice to be put into a coma for five years or 10 years or whatever their sentence was, and then we just wake them up and send them on their way? <laughs> and when you think about that, right, if it's really about sentencing people to time, like an amount of time has to be deducted from your life, then Olson would be right. But clearly, right, that doesn't that seems both too much and too little punishment, right? That doesn't seem right. Why, what's wrong with that? So if you start thinking about what would be wrong with the punitive coma, then I think you start getting at what is wrong with just warehousing people or making them kind of give up certain amounts of time. Um, time is not a quantity. <laughs> it's the arena within which we act. It's the, it's the space within which we experience life. We're not rocks. Um, we think and we live from a past to a future. So to merely persist in time is just not 
human life. Um, so if we're sensing people to time, are we just like sense, sensing them to a coma or to like a period of time of being just a rock? Um, that's inhumane because it's so not human. What would it be like to live in this space where there's no, there's no future, there's no sense of movement, there's no sense of growth or change? Um, and I think that's why you see the high rate of suicide attempts in prison. Um, you know, most studies put it at between five and 20 times the rate of suicide outside prison. And two thirds of those suicide attempts are unrelated to a previous psychiatric diagnosis. People just despair. I mean, it's this sense of complete enemy. There's this, there's nothing to live for. There's no reason to get out of bed. There's nothing to do. Um, so I think that's bad time. <laughs> um, and I think that prisons create trajectories. They create programming. They create good time credits so that people do have a sense of a kind of trajectory or a kind of point or a sort of narrative goal um, that they can be doing something while they're uh, doing quote unquote time. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the, that's the, that's Mm -hmm. part of the cosmological fallacy. The other part of the cosmological fallacy, I Mm -hmm. think is the sense that, you know, you can do, um, like Bernie Madoff, 150 years, <laughs> or um, that you right. can do like right. James Egan Holmes, who was the, the guy um, who shot all those folks in the Colorado theater, that you can do 3,000 years, right? 3,318 years. Mm-hmm. What does that even mean? We only have we only have one life to give for our crime, <laughs> you know. And so when you start thinking about crime as, or sorry, if you think about time as an amount, then it becomes absurd. Uh, very quickly to pose this question isn't it the case that really what we're sentencing them to is privation right so one of the the possibilities that i spin out is well is this really just another kind of retribution in other words if you think of especially violent crime as taking away a victim's sense of being at home in the world and um, creating so much fear and so much loss that they also have kind of lost the sense of community and lost the sense of trajectory. Well, maybe this is just a way to do the same thing to the prisoner and create a kind of hopelessness or an emptiness, uh, that experience of hopelessness or emptiness as itself a kind of retributive measure. Um, I mean, I think you can say that those experiences might have something in common, that they're sort of equivalent. Uh, but then you always have the problem, which I think is always true for retributivism, that you're just creating more um, more suffering rather than actually changing people's minds or hearts or souls. So you create a lot of soulless people who sit there and have lost their sense of of connection with other people, their sense of trajectory, their sense of wanting to be better in the future. You're just creating rocks. Um, Now, you know, you might argue that when they experience that sense of isolation and anomie, they're going to wish they hadn't done what they did and they're going to turn over a new leaf. But there's no way to actualize that in prison if you're really just talking about privation. Um, there's no way to actualize that idea that you want to, you know, commit yourself to to good service or that you want to apologize or that you want to go out and, and change the world for the better and, you know, kind of put some 
put some weight in the other side of the scale of your life. Uh, none of that is possible. It's, it's, um, you're, you're a ghost. You no longer are able to rehabilitate or change or renew your connection with anyone else. And so, um, it seems very fruitless to think of, uh, to think of, of prison time as just this period of being a rock. So in other words, the system is set up in such a way as to disallow prisoners the opportunity to begin to end their ostracization. Did I make that <laughs> word up? To begin to end their, um, their right. exile. And that would be very meaningful, obviously. You know, that would be like making the team or getting a good grade or getting a salary. It would be a goal right. they could work toward. And goals, of course, are what give us right. meaning. I think that's well established. And since that that is simply absent in the case of these people, that they live in a kind of, well, it's desperation, right. isn't it? They, there's nothing they can do to improve their situation. And humans don't like that right. very much. Exactly. That sense of complete helplessness of nothing to do, right? You get up in the morning and there's literally nothing to do. Now, of course, prisons don't actually run that way. That's just how our sentencing system is set up. So if you compare the way we sentence to the way we actually treat people when they get into these warehouses, I mean, I think good prison administrators really do try to create narrative and trajectory and programming and rehabilitation, but they're doing so uh, at a huge disadvantage because the first time that the budget is cut, it's the programming that goes, not the custodial services. Mm -hmm. And they're always, you know, the programming is always super reliant on volunteers. For example, you know, the, the college courses that, that we offer are completely volunteer and gratis to the prison institutions. The prisons are not paying for those. Um, so, so all the programming that happens in prison is very, uh, kind of ad hoc and it's very fragile and it never gets a chance to, to really take hold. Um, and you're also dealing, of course, usually with prisons that are way overcrowded and have so many needs that there's, it's very difficult to have a, a, a kind of sensible programming that would actually create meaning inside. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the absence of some sort of structured programming, which I guess is most places, I know this from people I know who've been in prison and even some who are, um, they create their own meaning, to put it um, right. mildly. I'm, I'm actually kind of reminded of the yeah. Zimbardo prison experiment. Oh, yeah. You know, that I'm like, uh, we do that every day. That's what we, yes, it's called exactly. prison. <laughs> no real news there. Exactly. We know what they do when they go into prison. They do what people do to make their lives meaningful. And with men, I mean, I'm, I don't mean to generalize. Often that means creating right. hierarchies and, I don't know, shaming and beating the crap out of each other and trading <laughs> stuff. Because that's what seems yeah. to like to do. And, uh, you know, I, and I, Again, I don't mean to generalize, but um, but yeah, could you talk a little bit about that? And some of these forms of drama are not particularly right. healthy. So, you know, I think that anyone who's bored um, will want to do something not to be bored. So boredom can lead to all kinds of bad conduct. Um, and also, I think there's a sense in which one doesn't want to be invisible, right? So again, acting out as a way of not being invisible, of, of trying to do something that will 
it, it's almost a, a a defense mechanism to the sense of disappearing into the rock, you know, the rock life, right? So you don't want to be a rock, so you're doing anything to try to get a reaction from the people around you. And that can be uh, in damaging ways as well as in good ways. Uh, in women's prison, I think you see a lot of families forming, for example, among prisoners. You see, um, uh, but yet a lot of hierarchy, a lot of, you know, kind of mean girl gossiping, a lot of that kind of bad behavior can happen if there's not um, a programming component, a kind of sense of you can make yourself better every day. And the women that I've worked with in my classes have just been incredible at resisting both the rock life and also the, you know, acting out life. And they, they, you know, get up every morning and they make a commitment to making sure that they do something during the day that makes their, makes them better um, and makes the people around them better. And it's only that like very tough commitment that, I have to just completely admire because I'm not sure if you stuck me in that same situation that I would be able to resist the the bad behavior or the rock like existence. Yeah, I um, agree with that completely. And I wonder about that in myself. I don't think I could. Um, I, I work with uh, drug addicts and alcoholics a lot and they face a kind of similar thing because they have to wake up everything every day and not do something. Right. <laughs> and, and, and then they have to do something because if they just not do something, uh, they will end up doing it. If you see what right. I mean. You, yeah. They, you they have did, to fill that void. Yeah. yeah. You have to have that, uh, as they call in Alcoholics Anonymous, the, um, I believe it's called the suitable substitute or something. I can't remember exactly what the book says, but in any event, yeah, you have to have something that gives your life meaning. And if you don't have that, you're going to be in a world of hurt. Right. We've got a lot of people in a world of hurt. Um, let me ask this question. It's not exa- I, I just think that the listeners will want to know this, and I'm sure you know. Is there any correlation between length of sentencing for particular crimes and a reduction in those crimes? So, you know, the See what theory. I'm saying? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. So, the theory, the theory back in the 70s was oh, my goodness, you know, recidivism rates are out, out, out of control. Um, if we, <clears throat> excuse me, if we raise sentences, then that will number one, incapacitate the people who are inside so they can't commit crimes. And it will also deter people who would commit crimes. Um, So we're basically going, so that length of sentence is going to help reduce crime. Right. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting because in the 90s, we just kept raising and raising and raising and raising and raising sentences at the same time that crime was going down. So we were raising sentences, crime was going down. and I think it's pretty clear to anyone who sort of looked at the data that it was not a cause and effect relationship. We were raising sentences far after they actually had a causal connection with the decrease in crime. Right. Um, most of the decrease came in the probably early 80s. And after that, um, you know, it was overkill. It was literally um, excessive uh, and and it, and it becomes damaging, right? Because you have to understand that incarcerating people doesn't come at, at no cost. It comes at a huge financial cost, but also a huge social cost. You're taking apart neighborhoods. You're leaving um, families without a person who can support them. Um, you're disintegrating social networks. Uh, and you're having 
families have to welcome back someone who's been incarcerated, who is going to have a really tough time finding a job, who's going to need tons of support. And those families are already financially and socially fragile. So um, it creates all kinds of dislocation and more crime. And so there's some studies that actually say the longer the, yeah, at some point you turn the corner, right? So, so maybe lengthening a sentence for a while will reduce crime, but after a while it may increase crime um, mm-hmm. because you're, you're having these deleterious effects on the community supports that help people not be violent and not engage in antisocial activity. Right. And so th- that is um, using the length of the sentence as a lever to reduce crime in the general population. So a second question would be, and related is, is there any evidence that the length of sentence reduces rates of recidivism? No. Um, so <laughs> once again, <clears throat> so once again, I think okay. if you're talking about moderate, if you're talking about moderate increases, um, like from nothing or maybe from, well, actually community, uh, community sanctions actually have a better effect on recidivism generally. So if you're, so if you're going to, if you really want to reduce recidivism, the best approach is not to put somebody in prison at all, because then they can continue their job and they can, you know, have social supports and they can actually uh, not have the stigma of having been to prison. So community sanctions have the lowest recidivism rates. But if you're going to put somebody in prison, there is a point at which giving them a little more time will reduce the recidivism rate. And we don't really know why that is. Um, but if you increase that sentence another five years or 10 years, uh, then you have the opposite effect. Then recidivism rates go up or don't change because the person has been out of the community for so long. They've lost their family. They've lost their community support. They've lost their job. They've lost their job contacts. They've lost their skills. And it's much, much harder for them to go back in. So if you look at recidivism rates from the like early eight or late 80s and you compare them with recidivism rates now, it's the same. Uh, we, mm-hmm. haven't, we haven't made a dent in recidivism rates um, at all. They're still hovering around 60, 70%. Yeah. As I said, I have had the experience of helping some of these, in this case, guys who've gotten out of prison or jail. Um, They'd never served really long sentences, but, you know, getting them back into the workforce in the community is uh, a struggle. Let's put it that way. Um, And I can only report mixed success. It's very tough for people. Very tough. Yeah, and it's kind of heartbreaking in many cases. I have to yeah. tell you, it's kind of and addiction. Yeah, absolutely. And addiction plays a huge role, right? Because what are you going to do if you get depressed and you can't get a job, and yeah. you're going to go and get high because it's going to make you feel better temporarily? Yes, that is exactly um, the case. So I am reminded of one thing you said that I learned here in Massachusetts. I'm not from Massachusetts, and um, uh, through a kind of peculiar set of connections, I learned about something they had here. And maybe you know something about this, because I think we're about the same age. I don't know. Um, I'm in my 50s. I'm not going to ask you how old you are. The, um, the, there was something here in Northampton, Massachusetts called Honor Court. Mm-hmm. And essentially, it was a community-run thing where they would take – and these were almost always guys – guys who usually – inebriated did something kind of wrong that mm-hmm. was against the law, but they didn't put them to ca- in County jail. They sentenced them to all of this kind of community service stuff. They kept their jobs. They stayed with their families 
And a guy named Bill Nagel, I remember he, because he's kind of famous in the community, ran it. And people speak about it like it was something, you know, from this golden time where people weren't sent off to county or weren't sent off to prison. Instead, they were sweeping the streets and doing these other, you know, kind of menial stuff. Do you know anything about those honor courts and what happened to them? Any idea at all? Well, so we still have some community courts around the country. And this is, yeah, absolutely. There's one in Hartford um, in Connecticut. And there's, uh, and there's a move to try to do more kind of community sanctioning. So again, to sanction someone to community service or to do something, right, um, instead of to be a rock. <laughs> and right. uh, and I think that that that, that is in, that's certainly what I'm advocating in this in this book. Um, in fact, you know, I kind of think that sentencing should look more like that in general. And I talk about how um, really a sentence should have three aspects. It should kind of relate to this past, present, future idea of living in time. First, you should be reflecting on your crime and, you know, what you did to the person that you hurt and maybe or your family, whoever it is that you hurt. Um, and you should be reflecting on what what caused you to do that and how you could alter your behavior or your, or, or your situation or your support system in order to make it easier for you not to do that. So you should have some of that past reflection time. Um, but you should also have this present opportunity to give back somehow through service. I mean, serving a sentence should be service in my view, and it should be like the honor court that you're describing. Although in my view, the service should be something that's ennobling, right? That you can feel proud of. Um, and that is, you know, there's, there's folks, for example, that are doing firefighting or they're raising um, service dogs or they're uh, gardening and giving the produce to a local food bank or, you know, they're doing something that is not in itself supposed to be humiliating, but is supposed to be ennobling. And, um, and then thirdly, looking toward the future, thinking about, well, what do you need um, in order to not fall into criminal behavior? What do you need in terms of maybe addiction help, um, maybe education, maybe vocational training, maybe uh, a better support system, um, you know, maybe family mediation, whatever it is, what, think about kind of what you need in order to be better in the future. So in my view, sentencing should have, should be thinking explicitly about those three things. Um, how do you um, atone essentially for what you did to the victim how do you serve your community and how do you look into the future and try to be better? So, mm-hmm. so there are courts like that. There's, um, for example, uh, there's drug courts springing up all over the country where um, instead of incarcerating people with addictions, um, they are going to court you know, periodically once every week or two weeks um, they're reporting on their progress to the judge that sentenced them. So there's an actual sort of personal sense of responsibility, both from the judge to the to the person who's been sentenced and also from the person who's been sentenced back to the judge. Um, and, you know, then they're surrounded by a support system. So they, they've got their addiction counselor and they've got, you know, vocational people that are there to try to help them find jobs. And they've got, you know whatever else they need. And then there's a sense of of trajectory, right? You can graduate from drug court, you get a big ceremony and you go out and you've completed this and you have the skills, hopefully, and the support system you need to to return. So courts are experimenting with that kind of an approach instead of this put you in a cell (laughs) approach. Um, 
then uh, there's also reentry courts where, um, it, again, you've you've maybe done some time, but in order to help you reenter, you're you're getting kind of a, a accelerated probation, and you're reporting to the court, and you're asking for help with maybe. Um, first and last month's rent, or, you know, maybe you need um, addiction counseling, or maybe you need vocational training or whatever it is. And there's people there that are sort of standing by every week to hear your story, to hear from you how it's going and to help you um, do better and to encourage you and support you and mentor you. So I think those kinds of things can be really, really good. There is also the danger though. And this is again, the problem with reform, right? There's always a dark side to whatever the reform is. And I think the danger is that you expand the criminal sanction. Um, so, for example, if you uh, are um, <laughs> if you're wandering around drunk on the streets one night, um, and the officer's only choice is to take up a prison cell with you, they may not arrest you. They may just send you home. But if they have this community court to send you to, then they might say, "Oh, well, I can send you to community court." Um, So you're expanding the reach of the criminal law. Um, And then if they do go to criminal court and they fail to show up for their their community service, well, then now they have a conviction that they wouldn't have otherwise had, which is going to have some damaging effects. So we have to be careful. We have to be super careful with how we do this and that we're not just, um, you know, creating more complicated situations for people who are already struggling with having, you know, a lack of organization in their life. Yes, unintended consequences. They're a bear. They are. They really are. Uh, one word that you mentioned really jumped out at me in terms of m- my own experience dealing with people who are re-entering society either after some period in prison or after some long stint of time using hard drugs or alcohol, and that is mentorship. Mm-hmm. And I know from my experience when I have become a mentor to these fellas and I have gained their trust, then we actually get somewhere Mm -hmm. pretty quickly. And that trust also involves them essentially giving a considerable amount of control over their life to me. (laughs) And sometimes I find that uncomfortable, but, and again, I'm just speaking of men here. I have no idea what the situation would be like with women. That seems to be a pretty effective model. It's also used, I should say, in 12-step programs mm-hmm. through sponsorship um, quite a bit. And you know, I have particular feelings about sponsorship, and I've had sponsors and things like this, and some have been better and some have been worse. And, and of course, I should also say that this brings up another danger because I know sponsors that have been mm-hmm. abusive. Uh, and, and this is a, something you really have to watch out for uh, because you – you know, you put somebody in control of somebody, married to aspects of somebody's life, and you've got to be a pretty straight shooter to have that kind of authority. Um, so I just, well, I, I think I, I, mean, I think what you say is absolutely right, and I think one of the virtues of a kind of reentry court setting is it is very public, and you know, you it's harder to um, to have one person kind of uh, dominating. Um, the the relationship because you do have a a kind of 360 degree service module where a lot of people are involved in this one person's success. Um, But that said, there's no substitute for that kind of personal relationship. And I think our model um, of imprisonment 
was just, well, for example, one of the sayings that used to go around York prison where I teach is, you know, you come in alone and you go out alone. So don't get close to anybody. And, you know, mm-hmm. that was the model, right? You have to change yourself. Nobody can do this for you. And, and part of that personal responsibility is great, but how many, how many of us actually live that way, right? <laughs> how many of us? Like you said, it's, it's, it's funny because one of the mottos in the recovery community is that you're never alone and you can't do it alone. Right. And I think that's much more our experience with life. We all have friends and we all have people that we rely on and we all have people that we need. And the idea that somehow you can change your whole life by yourself is is nuts, right? So, so this, so this means that we actually have to rethink how we do prisons, right? We we shouldn't discourage people from forming relationships in prison, you know, unless they're really bad relationships. Um, we shouldn't f- forbid people from having connections with the volunteers that they have, you know, learned from while they're in prison. There should be a bridge and there should be people that they know on the outside when they get out already. Um, so I think, you know, I think a lot of prisoners and a lot of the literature is moving that direction. How can we create bridges um, between the prison and the community rather than, okay, you're on your own, you have to change yourself, here's your cognitive behavioral training, um, you know, doc, your your worksheets, um, now you do these worksheets, now you can go out and be a different person. And I, and I just, yeah, yeah right. that's just, you know, it's just not realistic. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's uh, ticket-punching <laughs> oh, at its finest right there. That is ticket-punching. I mean, I, again, I keep coming back to my own experience and, and, and that is that I, I would love to do more with these guys. I have a few guys that I, I work with, but I'm a busy guy. I have three kids and a job and so on and so forth. And I don't mean to be too plain spoken about this, but if they right. pay me to do it, I might do more of it. I really might. I really, if, if there were a program down there that we're going to pay $25 an hour, I don't know, 20, whatever it is, right. go and rate for somebody who's legit. And, you know, like I've been in this, you know, I've been just a lay my cards. I've been sober for 15 years and I've been through everything. And like, I, I am a good citizen. <laughs> I've done this. So you pay me $20 an hour and I'll work with these guys. There's yeah. no such thing. Well, congratulations. Yes. And I think this is also really important because one of the things that we're also talking about is how we can draw on the experience of people who've been in prison, who've come out, who've been successful to mentor right? The folks who are coming out because they've, they've got, they've got cred, right? You've got, you've got cred. You need, right. They do. I have cred. You need that. You need that cred in order to, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) You need that cred in order to have a successful mentoring relationship. And yet we don't pay for that. And you're, well, you know, I'm very much like, yeah, I'm very, very Chicago school when it comes to incentives. Like if you pay people, they'll usually do what you say. Mm -hmm. That's America. And, uh, Relying on volunteers, it kind of works for, you know, 12-step recovery. works pretty well. But I don't know about this, though. I can't hardly carve out any more time than I have because I work. And, you know, I, I really think that, honestly, my time would probably be better spent in terms of the greater social well-being if I was working with a bunch of these guys. But there's no mechanism for me exactly. to pay to do it, so. And that, I think, is where we really need to allocate, reallocate our funds. Instead of, you know, having these ridiculous contracts with phone companies and food companies and, you know, uh, paying a lot of money for big, huge institutional buildings. Oh, I don't think most people know about that. That's one of the things I learned is the yeah. calling a prison. That That is just, you can yeah. hardly believe it, how much it costs. You can hardly believe it. That's like such well, a Well, and there's a lot of those prison contracts where the companies are making a fortune. And they're making a fortune from our tax money. And also that money is coming directly yeah, oh out of the possible programming that we could be doing that would be so much more effective. 
Right. So, you know, relying on volunteers right. to do this kind of reentry work or this kind of, you know, in prison work makes it very fragile and makes it inefficient and it, it makes it, it ad hoc. And so if you really want to do this right, you've got to put money in it. Yeah, you do. You absolutely. I mean, this is, I run a business now too. And I just basically know that if I want to get something done, I'm going to have to pay somebody. I mean, we have volunteers as well, but the fact of the matter is, is that you need money and the people with experience are going to demand and rightfully so mm-hmm. to be paid for their work. And, uh, and it's worth it because I think in the long run, you know, I'm not going to toot my own horn, but I know that people like me probably save the taxpayers of the United States, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars exactly. by keeping these guys out of prison. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saving everybody. <laughs> You're free to send me checks, by the way, everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's, there's also I don't know. really good evidence, for example, that you know, taking college courses in prison reduces recidivism by like 25, 30, 40%. So again, you know, we're saving the state a lot of money and we're doing it for free. So is anybody trying to implement a system of, I don't know, building these bridges, as you put it, uh, on a national level or a state level, I guess on a local level? Well, there's a lot of really good. (laughs) The Koch brothers have the Koch brothers. They really want to do prison reform. They're all about it. Um, Yeah, they really want to do it. I mean, you may hate them. I mean, I don't know who hates them. Well, you know, there's a lot of foundation support for this. There's the Pew Foundation. There's Vera. There's the Sentencing Project. Um, so you've got a lot of foundations that are interested in supporting this. There's something called the social impact bond, which is kind of a, a bet. So a, a, an organization, for example, that's interested in prison reform will go to the state legislature and say, hey, you know, we'll support X program that has this track record of empirical success in reducing recidivism. And if it works, then you have to take it over and pay for it. And if it doesn't work, then you're out no money. Um, so it's kind of this bet with the state. Right. And, you know, there may be some kind of problems with that social impact bond idea because, of course, you're letting private entities determine state policy. Um, but, you know, it might be the only way that we can get out of this hole where we've spent so much on institutions and we have so many contracts that we can't change anything because we don't have the money to change it. Right. Well, if I were a better citizen, I would get together with my buddies at AA and we'd there you go. apply for one of those things. There's a lot of, there's a lot of I'm AA presence in the institution yeah. and it's super positive. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not that because, you know, the analogies, the analogies are pretty compelling because you come, you know, drug addiction is a kind of uh, prison. I mean, you're in it and you don't want to be in it and you're marking time and it's meaningless and you just have to do these same things every day and it goes nowhere and you can't get out and, and, you know, these people at at AA and NA and I don't know, all kinds of other A's have, I mean, I, I'm not going to tell you that these programs are terribly effective in terms of, uh, you know, the numbers of, well, in terms of the percentage of people that they help, they, they, they often aren't. But for those who they do help, right. and they are in their millions, right. um, they're, they're what we have. And, and so I'm, I'm, I will not criticize any of them on that level because they are what we have. And until somebody right. comes up with something better, uh, they're what we have, and and so I, I do. I do often think about this, though this this analogy, and and I think about how in the world we got to where we are because it's so <laughs> bizarre. 
that the freest country in the world, and maybe that's it. I'm the freest country in the world has the largest percentage of its population right. in prison. That's just like you don't need to be much of an ironist to read right. to, to appreciate that. Um, that's good. Well, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time, Linda, and I really appreciate it. It's a terrific book, and I hope people go out and read it. Um, could you close the interview by answering our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on so, now? <laughs> I'm taking a turn away from uh, criminal law and sentencing, because I did the big book on mercy, and I did this book on sort of time and sentencing. And I'm going to look kind of more broadly at the opposition between reason and what I'm going to talk about is revelation. And this is a very strange project, but it's based on this idea that as a sort of culture, we have a a conflict between our kind of enlightenment reason-based past and our also revivalist evangelical religious past. And so as a, you know, America has both of those traditions very strongly. And I think you can see them coming into renewed conflict right now, as you have, for example, in the Masterpiece Bake Shop case, um, this claim that I can discriminate because it's my religious right, you know, it's my religious right to do that. Um, So this conflict between reason and revelation, of course, has deep, 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 deep roots. And I'm looking at it in a tiny slice of a way um, as part of this criminal law doctrine of insanity. So normally, in order to show that you are insane and therefore should be acquitted, you have to show uh, either that you don't know the nature and quality of your act. In other words, you don't know what you're doing. You think that the person that you're shooting is Godzilla. Or you don't know that what you're doing is wrong. You've kind of lost your sense of right and wrong. You just don't get it. Um, but there's a there's a sort of addendum to that lurking in the doctrine, which is, well, but if you know what you're doing and you know that it's against the law and you know that it's wrong, but God told you to do it, then we might also acquit you. And so mm-hmm. this idea that um, talking to God, number one, is insane is very kind of bizarre because a lot of people think they talk to God and they don't think of themselves as insane. Um, and this question of, well, mm-hmm. you know, how do you know that this is a divine command and how do you sort of express this idea of revelation and what happens when revelation comes directly into conflict with kind of reason and law. And so I'm looking at some of these cases and there's actually a lot of them. There's a lot of cases where people do horrible crimes because they think God told them to. Um, So anyway, it's a kind of a very bizarre project, but it's meant to kind of explore this bigger question, which is not unrelated to the question of mercy and justice. Um, but it's the darker side of that question, which is what about the, the unreasonable, irrational um, violence that happens in the name of God? Fascinating project. I'm not surprised at all that there are lots of such cases in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> this would be where you would find them. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, the congratulations on that work, and we look forward to talking to you again um, when uh, some of that work comes out. And thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much, Marshall. You've just been terrific interlocutor. Well, thank you very much. And let me say to everyone who listens to the New Books Network, thank you very much. Today, we've been talking with Linda Ross Meyer about her book, Sentencing in Time. I encourage you to get it. You can get it for free 
actually at Amherst College Press's website. Free, as in free beer, as they used to say. <laughs> you can just get it. It's not doesn't cost anything. Isn't that remarkable? A book like this for free. So I encourage you to go ahead and get it. And thanks very much for listening, everybody.